Yeah, my name is Gavo. Or Gav. Or Gavin. I go by all three. Um, I also go by dad to a couple boys and husband to a wonderful wife, and I want to show a picture of them. I got a picture of them. That is my family. That's the Briscoe family. Uh, last year, I realized that, like, they never... Oh, you can keep it up there. You can keep... Like, let's look at them for a little longer. Yeah. There's... The three of them are really cute. And uh, I realized last year, many of you never got to meet them. And then Rebecca was able to be up here with the Ministry Expo today, and Simeon was running around uh, and being a goofball, and I loved it, but not all of you have met my family, so this is my wonderful, beautiful family, Rebecca, Seth, and Simeon. Okay, so uh, 16 years ago... Sorry, let me say that again. 21 years ago, I was 16 years old. And I'll spare you the math. I'm 37. I know you're probably like trying to put that together. You're at Bible college because you didn't do well at math. I know that. Okay? I know that. Somebody say amen, right? 21 years ago, I was a 16-year-old over-emotional teenage boy. Anybody else? Yeah, right. Clayton, that's still you, buddy. That's still you. Hey, my backstory was um, I, uh, I have a few brothers. I have three brothers. Uh, my parents, when they had their kids, they decided to, like, just go for it, all in one bang. And so there's four boys in five years that they had for kids. So from youngest to oldest, it's like five years and four months uh, between my oldest brother, Miles, and my youngest brother, Kelsey. Uh, and I'm number three in the pecking order of the four. And uh, we, I was born in Kelowna, was uh, primarily raised in the Okanagan, but after all four of us were born, my parents decided to move to Trail in the Kootenays. Where's my Kootenay people at? Yeah, right, awesome. Amish, <laughs> I love it. And uh, so we moved to Trail, and uh, my parents divorced when we were in Trail, and uh, my mom took the four of her boys and went back to West Kelowna. And so I was raised by a single mom, and we lived in the stereotypical life of what a single mom living on welfare uh, took care of her kids in a trailer park. Anybody in the trailer park with me? Right on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the Briscoe boys, we grew up in a trailer park in West Kelowna uh, on Old Okanagan Highway, Village Green Trailer Park. That place was my stomping grounds, and I loved it as a teenager, or as a kid, I should say, not as a teenager. <laughs> because as I got into uh, being a, becoming a teenager, I was actually quite embarrassed of my childhood, quite embarrassed of my home, a broken home, a single mom. Uh, and my mom was a wonderful lady, and I loved her very, very dearly. Uh, before she had passed, but she was a 5'2", full of heart, full of love uh, lady who had four boys that were all six feet, and she just did her best to love us as best that she could. Uh, but she was that stereotypical stay-at-home mom who, who smoked all day and hoarded everything in our little trailer, and so that was the childhood that I grew up in. And I was an outgoing kid that was quite happy. I loved to play sports. I loved to uh, be on our, like our drama um, theater productions that we had every year in like grade seven and middle school and in high school. And I, I loved it. I loved being outgoing and energetic. Uh, and I was happy outgoing. But inside, I wasn't like deep, dark, down. I was over-emotional uh, and had void in my life without having a father at home. I had mentioned about that on Monday. 
Um, <clears throat> so there was this emptiness that was there inside of me, this sadness that just existed, this embarrassment that I had about my home. I never brought anybody over to my home because I was just too embarrassed, so I always went over to other people's places after school. And as I grew into uh, a teenager, I, you know, you hit that stage of life where there's opportunities to start taking drugs, to start drinking alcohol, and to smoke pot and cigarettes and all that. But I had no interest in that as a teenager. In a non-Christian, agnostic household, we weren't atheists, but we, yeah, we, we thought there'd be a God that existed, but we had no need for him. So we just had no relationship with him. And I, I had wanted nothing to do with that lifestyle that can destroy people's lives because it destroyed my parents. And therefore, I didn't want to have a repeat of that in my life. So I never wanted it. And I hit this stage in my life as a 16-year-old boy where I was lost. That I, I loved playing sports and I loved being on the stage and making people happy and the athletic stage of a sports field and, and having fun. But there was this void that just existed inside of me. And I had some friends who were more like classroom friends. You know, in school, like you hang out with them because you see them every day and they're in your class and so you become friends, but you never hang out with them outside of school. You know what I'm talking about? So I had some of those class friends and they invited me to come to church with them. And my experience for church was um, very, very limited. Okay, so my experience for church, again, growing up in a non-Christian household, was we would go visit my grandparents, and they would take us to church. And we're talking, I would visit my grandparents once a year at most. And if it landed on a weekend, then we would go to church. So I could probably count on both hands by the time I was 16, the amount of times that I stepped foot into a church. It was an old Lutheran church in the cusp. Again, in the Kootenays, hit it up for the Kootenays, Mish, Hills. I love it. And so they would take us to church. Us four boys would get put on the Greyhound and we'd get shipped over to Grandma and Grandpa Briscoe's and uh, we would go to church and we would double the size of the congregation when the four of us would arrive. <laughs> okay? And on stage, and like I'm talking, I only remember one man the whole time of my childhood. He was there for a long time. And he was like in his, what I thought was a black dress, but it was this gown that he would wear, Right? clerical collar, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he would be up at the front. And then there was this lady, the exact same lady every time we went, that was over at the funny-looking piano, which was a organ, right? And she would play, and it was just the two of them. That was it. Nothing like this, okay? Like just the two of them up on stage, and they would sing. And we would all sing-talk together in front of us, which I thought were Bibles at the time as a teenager, we would hold up these Bibles, and we would go through the Bible together, sing-talking it. And then it would be the regular font. He would sing-talk. And on the bold font, we would all sing-talk. You know what I'm talking about? It's not a Bible. It's a hymnal. Exactly. I thought that was the Bible. <laughs> I had no education or understanding of Christianity, of the church, of Jesus at all. And so I was invited to go to church, and I thought, I don't want to go to that for church. It's kind of weird, right? And so I didn't go. For months, I didn't go. And they would continually ask me. Yet, I felt accepted that they would want me to be with them. You know what I mean? But yet, I was not interested in what they were asking me to be a part of. 
unknowingly what they were asking me to be a part of. I was empty. I was void. I was insecure. I was over-emotional. I was confused. I was ultimately lost. And uh, the youth group of this church that they were asking me to, to be a part of and come to put on an event in our high school on the last Friday of every month. And it was this fun event that, like, advertised in our public school, public high school in West Kelowna. And on, like, the PA system, like, it would say, come to Deep End on Friday night. And they would have posters up on the wall, come to Deep End on Friday night. And there's going to be, like, live music. And it wasn't worship music. It was, like, punk rock music. It was, like, the thing in, like, the early 2000s in West Kelowna, okay? It was, like, you're getting up there and you're dancing around like this, okay? Having a grand old time. <laughs> wow is right. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. It was such a good era. You all were just born at that time, okay? And uh, so uh, I was interested. Yeah, there was music and there was games, like, like obstacle games and like tag relay games and like challenge games, like the milk chug challenge game was like our big epic challenge game, right? Where you got to drink a four liter jug of homogenized milk. And the first person to do so wins like a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. And they're like, yeah, right? Like just over the top excited for a Slurpee after they throw up about two and a half liters of milk. Possible to just shove four liters of liquid in your stomach at one time. So it was like, drink, ah, drink, ah. and then the first person who wins, it's like, Slurpee, right? <laughs> it, was, it was gold for a 16 year old over emotional teenage boy, right? Uh, but the main reason why I went wasn't because of the games, wasn't because of, of the activities, uh, it was because there was free pizza every single Friday night. Free pizza. And there were pretty girls, so I went because there was pretty girls there, okay? If I'm honest. Girls and pizza led me to Jesus, ultimately. Come on, someone say amen. <laughs> uh, and so I went, and I had a great time at this Deep End event. And there would be uh, a couple students who would share a story didn't know at the time it was a testimony, but they would just share a story. And I thought it was cool. And they were friends of mine in class, so I thought it was awesome. And then it happened again the next month. And they said, hey, why don't you come on out? And I had such a good time that I would go early to help set up this deep end event. And I was like setting up the games and I'm mingling with all these other people. And there was just something about them. Didn't know what it was at the time. There was just something about them that I just loved. So I'd show up. And I would get there hours early, and I met this guy named Derek Koch. Remember I talked about youth pastor Derek, hero of mine? I met this guy named Derek. And he was like, yeah, of course you can come on. And he, he fed me cheeseburgers, and he told me to do stuff and put this stuff here and set this stuff up there, and I loved it. Um, and so I, I went again the next month, and I would go early, and I would set up. <clears throat> and there was one specific month. It would have been the end of April, the last Friday in April, uh, we're there, the event gets put on. I think it was like Sunny D they used instead of milk for the chugging contest, that one. And it was like sour and like, like acidity when people like drank it and threw up. It was bad. So that was like a no-go, not doing that again. <laughs> uh, but I remember specifically on that night as the, like the pizza was always on like 
It was, it was in the gymnasium of the school, and there was like above the locker room, loft area in the gym, and you would walk up the stairs, and there was literally hundreds of boxes of pizza that would be at the top of that loft. And it was amazing. So as you started walking up the stairs, you would see like the first box, and the next box, and the next one, and it just like angelic sounds like came out of nowhere as you just looked at the boxes of pizza. So I remember going up there, and there was so much pizza every single month that I could have an entire pizza to myself. And as a 16-year-old, over-emotional teenage boy, that is gold, right? So I remember taking that pizza and eating that pizza, like seriously, the whole box, just like this, and looking around and again picking up and noticing that there was something very different and very unique for those who would put on the event, excluding myself who came early to help out, but who would put on the event and those who would come just for pizza and girls. There was a distinct difference that I noticed about that. And I was interested in what it was. It's all I could think of in that time was that they were happy. That's the only word that I could put inside my head that I could articulate to myself is that they were happy. They had this happiness about them. And so I wanted what they had. And so I went to youth group. That very next Tuesday, I went to youth group. And I was freaked out of my mind because they didn't invite me to that week on Tuesday. I just went and walked in the front doors like by myself, filled with fear and insecurities of like what is going to happen as I walk in through these doors. And I had a good night. Nothing big, nothing exciting. It was just a good night. Then that Friday <clears throat> would have been May 12th. And uh, there was this youth rally in Kelowna. And so we get to, yeah, where's Kelowna? Dakota, come on, right. Anybody else? Kelowna, come on. <clears throat> and we jumped on this school bus, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of Christians. <laughs> and here's this agnostic, over-emotional teenage boy. On this bus going into Kelowna, and we go to this youth event. And again, like there was, there was the, the punk rock music in the deep end having a good time, Right. And there was like our youth group that was just having a good time. But I had yet to be at a place where there was a worship experience similar to this. My only experience was the gentleman in the dress and the lady on the funny piano. That's my only experience up until that moment. And we get there and there's this worship set going on. And I was like awkward as teenage boys could be in that moment. People are like this, hands up, and I'm just like, what is going on right now? And a gentleman spoke and preached that night, and I have no clue what he preached on that night, uh, except I knew that he talked about Spider-Man, because I love Spider-Man. And then there was this altar time after his message, and he invited people to come up, and people were praying for one another, and I just like, right to the back of the room, and was like... Just taking it in. I wasn't freaked out. I wasn't scared. It was just weird. I'd just never done it before. Yet I was still very intrigued that there was something that my friends had that I was empty still with. There was still a void that existed inside of me. And so a friend of mine, a friend of ours, Nikki, came and chatted with me that night and said, hey, can we chat? And I said, sure. And as she sat down with me, I got really emotional. Like really, really emotional. 
that I could not hold in the emotions that I had. And I was unsure why these emotions were coming. Like they were, it was just out of nowhere. And so she starts saying, like, hey, did you know that Jesus loves you? Do you know that God sent his son into this world because he loves you? Do you know that Jesus died on the cross because he loves you? And that if you choose to believe in him, that you will have everlasting life because he loves you. And so she asked if she could pray for me. So I, and my, like, trying to hold in my emotions, I said, yeah, I, I would like that. And so I stood up. <laughs> and so then she stands up. <laughs> because my thought is, you have to be standing, head bowed, eyes closed, hands together. And if you don't got that going, there ain't no way you're connecting to this higher power <laughs> in the skies. And so I'm there standing like this, and she puts her hand on me, and boom. I just, like, floodworks flowing. Niagara Falls just coming out of my face. And I start crying like crazy. And I felt a couple other hands from other friends of mine who put their hands on me and started praying for me. And they just start praying. And I'm like, as my eyes are like draining like crazy, my nose starts draining like crazy. Anybody else? Where their nose instantly just gets like stuffed and then you can't breathe. And then it's just like drip, 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 drip. Like, con like consistently out my nose. <laughs> I'm holding my hands like this, and I can feel it drip onto my hands. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like the <laughs> type of crying, okay? <laughs> and I can, feel, I can feel my tears and my snot, like, hit my hands. <laughs> and Nikki's brother, um, Andy, took some paper towel and wiped up like this on my face <laughs> as, as, we're like, as everybody's praying. <laughs> and so then Nikki, in the midst of everybody praying, says, Gavin, would you like to accept Jesus as your Savior? And I remember thinking in that moment, eating a box of pizza and being like, what is it that's so different that they're happy about that they have that I don't have? There's something full about them, this happiness. And I realized it was Jesus. They had a joy. They had a new life. They had meaning and purpose and fullness in their life that I was missing, and it was Jesus. And so in that moment, that void, Jesus filled it. And I became valid. And I became real. And I became full of new life that I had never experienced before. Again, I couldn't articulate it in that moment, at that time. The language wasn't there. I just knew it was happiness. I knew it was Jesus. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know what giving your life to Jesus or accepting Jesus as your Savior actually meant, but I knew that was real. It wasn't just emotions. It wasn't just feelings. There was something real that was there. And so we got on the bus after I gave my life to the Lord, and we went back to uh, our church in West Kelowna. And Derek gave me a Bible. And I said, great, <laughs> I don't know what to do with this. And he said, read the book of John. I said, I thought this was the Bible, not the book of John. And he's like, no, the book of John is in the Bible. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and so uh, I start reading. That night, I start reading the book of John. The very first time I ever cracked open a Bible, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he 
is there. And so I read John chapter 1. And I read John chapter 2. And I read John chapter 3. And I got to this John 3.16. Not a Christian, but still had heard of this John 3.16. It was common, especially in that day and age, two decades ago, people at least knew something about John 3.16. I didn't know what the line was, but I had heard the reference John 3.16 before. I also watched WWE growing up, and there was a guy named Stone Cold Steve Austin back in the day. It was awesome, and he had a t-shirt that was uh, Austin 316, and I'm not going to tell you what the line was because there's a couple cuss words in it, uh, but I thought that was awesome, and then I'm like, wait, Stone Cold oh, 316, John 316. This is the line that I've heard people talk about before, but I've never read it before, uh, and so I read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I was like, hey, that's what Nikki said to me right before I prayed. And so I underlined it in my Bible, in my teen study Bible that Derek gave me. My very first underlined scripture verse ever in John 3.16. And I realized, again, could not articulate it, but I realized in that moment that I had new life, that I was born again, not even understanding what that meant, but that I was born again, that I was a Christian, that I had meaning, purpose, and that emptiness and void was filled with joy and goodness and light and life. It was filled not just with words, but with promises with the person who fulfills those promises. I experienced Jesus dwelling in me on May 12th, the year 2000. And I have it to prove because it's, you know, at the beginning of the Bible, right? You can put like your name and the date that it was given to you. There it is, Gavin Briscoe. And then they wrote the date and I got this Bible from. So then they scratched it out and put a manual assembly and then wrote May 12th, 2000 in the actual date. And I love it. That was my first experience of ever reading scripture, ever reading John. And as this summer, Kim and I were discussing about this series uh, and going through and studying for, for this semester, I was just over flooded with emotions again of the first time that I ever read these words because they were so life-changing to me. And I also felt a little bit convicted because I've read them many times and that, that over-emotion and life change has faded at times as I've read these words. But as I've read them again, oh man, the Spirit gives life to all mankind. And it's been a joy to get to this point again in reading through this passage to chat with you tonight. The book of John is a bit poetic in how he wrote out these stories and these scenes of Jesus. Different than the synoptic gospels, right? We're aware of that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John is unique and different in his writing style. He's very much poetic in these portraits that he really paints about these, these scenes with Jesus and some individual unique person. And there's detail that comes out in the layers and the layers as you read and reread the Gospel of John. 
<clears throat> and in John's like gospel, it's slow paced, right? Jesus like walks into a city and he meets someone and he sits and he has a conversation with them. Matthew and Mark and Luke, they're quick and they're short and something happens, Jesus says something and the disciples are confused and on to the next story, right? Like that's how it works. But in John, it's like he comes in and there's this wedding and there's this banquet and this miracle and this feast and this reveal. And then he has this long conversation in the middle of the night with this rabbi in this personal one-on-one moment when he dwells with him. And there's other stories that we'll go through in scenes and episodes, really, that John uses. Where he, There's so much red letter, if you have a red letter Bible in the book of John, of just this conversation that Jesus has as he dwells among his people. And in, in John, it, it's unique. It's, it's different. It's not like the, the synoptics where like Jesus says something and then the Pharisees are offended and then they try to kill him and still the disciples are confused. It's poetic. It's these episodes. It's these portraits that John is revealing something to his readers as you read over and over again what he's getting across. <clears throat> and he does it specifically with artistic words and wordplay. That as you read again, like with the theme water, you see it this filter through the entire book. Or the theme of light and dark, and you see it filter through every page. And this beautiful, like, like really theatrical play that he's presenting with like a dozen to 15 different scenes in it. As Jesus works his way to the cross. To the ultimate revelation of who Jesus is. As God incarnate, Messiah to not just Israel, but to all mankind. <clears throat> and so what we're going to do today is we're going to first look at this scene of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3. Actually, we're going to start in John chapter 2, verse 23. <clears throat> it says this in verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all man. Sorry, he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? 
I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God, one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John is setting up a scene here. He does so masterfully. I just love this scene. It's a juggernaut of a scene to work through. And so in chapter 2, he starts off, at the end of chapter 2, he says that he would not, Jesus would not entrust himself to man. Another translation says, Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. Like he knew, Jesus knew what was in each person. And he's setting the stage. He's setting the scene with Jesus and Nicodemus. Because he says in the first line of chapter 3, now there was a man. Right? You see what John's doing? Jesus knows all man. He would not entrust himself to man because he knows what is in man. Now there was a man. So he's already starting off, okay, man is sinful. Man is broken. Man is in need of a Messiah, of a Savior. But the man that he chose, John chose to describe in society would have been one who is greatly esteemed, not always loved by everybody, but greatly esteemed and looked at with respect, especially among their peers. So this man... A Pharisee, a Pharisee who would, who would be personally claimed is not a man who is broken or evil or unclean, but would be one who would be considered righteous, who works hard to be esteemed and respected well. So a religious man, a Pharisee. He was also a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, which is a very powerful, exclusive group made up of 71 people, led by this high priest. They were under the Roman rule, but they had this governmental powers given over to them that they could impress, or excuse me, impose upon the Jewish citizens. Nicodemus, he would have been very influential as a part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He would have been very powerful and influential and a well-known man to all. He was also a Pharisee. And Pharisees weren't generally rulers. They're like scholars. They're teachers. They kept to the letter of the law. Pharisee actually in the Hebrew word means to separate. 
So they would live a separate life according to the Mosaic law. They would surrender completely and wholly to make sure that they would never break the law, the commands. They considered themselves separate ones to the world. They were so careful to avoid breaking any of the commandments that they created multiple other laws just to make sure that if they don't break these laws, then they're good to make sure they wouldn't break the commandments, right? So they have 613 laws, the Levitical laws that you can read about in the Torah. And and Nicodemus, he would have had known these laws well. He would have memorized the Torah. So he would have known each of these laws and believed that he could attain a righteousness if he lived according to these laws. So here's Nicodemus, a man. Jesus knows what is in man. He looks good on the outside. He's obedient to what he's been told to do and to laws that have been created and commands given by God. A scholar, a leader of the Jews. And Jesus himself refers to him as Israel's teacher. And there comes this conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus in the quietness of the night. And Nicodemus finds time to meet with Jesus, the two of them, away from the crowds, away from everybody else. One-on-one, Jesus spends time with this high-profile person. And I think maybe Nicodemus wanted to steer clear of crowds. Like, I would think that that would be an element of truth to why they met in the evening. And I've heard it preached before that Nicodemus, you know, maybe was a coward or was afraid because here's this man, Jesus, claiming to be the Son of God, which is blasphemy. And here's this teacher of teachers wanting to meet with Jesus. And they they despised Jesus. They were offended by Jesus. They hated him. And so I've heard it being preached that, you know, he was a coward and he wanted to do it in the secret of the night. But I think it's more than that. Like, I think it's deeper than that. I don't think he was a coward. I think maybe he was cautious. And I believe, because what John writes and convinced that the conversation happened in the evening, but I also believe that this is a literary device that John uses in his writing, in his you know, display of the scene. He's setting the background here in his scene. It's an artistic use of John that, as in chapter 1, Light equates life as darkness equates death. So you see what he's doing? There's this man, well-respected and knows the laws. Righteous in all accounts to himself. But Jesus knows man, and he is in the dark. This man, who is good, is actually full of void and emptiness inside. So he's using this light and this dark to resemble and reflect that Nicodemus is empty inside. Chapter 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The work of Christ extends into darkness. Amen? So the fall of this night, I believe, with Nicodemus and Jesus, 
has less to do with the need to be hidden and the more to do with the need to be born again, to be completely renewed in who he is as a person. So it's not just about being a coward. I think he was cautious. I think it took place in the evening. But John is using this artistically to express light and dark. And so Nicodemus says this flattering sentence, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus straight up ignores the flattery, like just bypasses all of it completely and gets right to it. I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus is confused. A second time? Like a second time into my mother's womb? How can this be? And, and Nicodemus' concept, right? When Jesus says no one can see the kingdom of God, like Nicodemus' concept of the kingdom of God was physical. It was that this army soldier leader, Messiah, was going to come and was going to wipe out the Roman rule over their lives. And the Israelites were going to once again take over power and be kingdom, all kingdom, all power over every other nation here on earth. And this is the, the concept that Nicodemus would have had. And Christ is talking about an eternal kingdom. And so there's this confusion that Nicodemus has. So Jesus responds. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. You ever been in a conversation like that before? Like whether somebody's saying it to you or you're saying it to somebody, where you explain something very clearly, and they're like, huh? And then you're like, I... <laughs> Raiden, which way are you talking about? Were you the person who says, huh? Or are you the person who's explaining it? Both. Okay, good. I like that. I've been in both, too. I've been in both, too. Where, like, I've explained something, uh, like, directions on how to get somewhere. Let's use that as an example. And they're like, uh-huh. And I'm like, I don't know how to better explain it except just repeating exactly what I said the first time. Right? And this is exactly what Jesus does with Nicodemus. He just repeats pretty much word for word what he said last time. He's confused, and Jesus says, mm, we're just going to the straight to the point. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. The Greek word here for born is anothen, all you, those who are going into Greek this semester. Uh, to be born can emphasize two different distinct meanings. So it can mean born again. It can also mean born from above, that they must be born from above. Some, some of the ESV translations uses this born from above. And so Jesus is saying that unless you are born from above, born from water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter, you cannot see, and be a part of the kingdom of God. This born again, again in, in John chapter 1, you're going to hear us reference it all throughout this semester. Because as John's intro in, in chapter 1, every title he gives to Jesus and language and picture that he uses in chapter 1, he does all throughout the rest of the book. So anything that's mentioned in the rest of the book is spoken already about in John chapter 1. So in John 1, 12 to 14, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decisions, but born of God. 
You need to be born again. Born from above. Born through the water and the Spirit. And Jesus, in verse 7, to Nicodemus' confusion, he responds, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. Oh, that kind of cuts deep. This poor man's confused. And all Jesus is doing is just repeating what he said the first time again. And he's like, you shouldn't be surprised by this. But it's true, Nicodemus shouldn't have been surprised by this. He would have known the Old Testament. He would have memorized the Torah. He would have read so much other theological reflections. He would have known of the prophets. He would have known through the Old Testament. And Jesus here is picking up out of Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So six centuries earlier, Ezekiel says these words, six centuries later, here's Jesus speaking these words to a teacher who would have known them. And he's confused. His life has been about this exterior, these laws, this obedience and self-righteousness on the outside. And here comes this man of God, this son of man, this son of God, flipping what he would have known and committed his entire life to from the beginning. Time is coming where there will be transformative new beginning, a cleansing by water that washes away all impurities and idols, and a new heart and a new spirit within will come forth. A new birth, come on, you with me, is what is required if people are to see and to enter this kingdom of God. And guess what? How does Nicodemus respond? How can this be? He's still confused. He still cannot put it together. How can this be? And you see what John is doing. Again, think playwright. Think artistic. Okay? He is setting this stage. Self-righteous. Credited. High esteemed. Jesus comes and completely flips the script. The person who would have been known to know all and to understand all and to teach all is straight downright confused. So if he isn't able to gain righteousness by himself, if he can't do it, as a reader I say, okay, there's no way that I could ever do it because Jesus knows what's in man. And so that's not the answer. Jesus may be the answer. And so John is setting this stage. Dark, darkness, what is in man. There is this man who thinks he's got it all together but doesn't. Darkness and light, death and life. Righteousness by self-credit, righteousness to belief and surrender. And John uses this story as a setup for the best proclamation of the gospel that we have in this book. Jesus knows what's in man. 
And he spends time with this man. And he dwells with this man. And teaches this man that there is a new way. And that way is to be born again. I love this part. Like, I love this section. Okay? So if you have your Bible, I want you to open it up. Get to this page. 1,380 in my book. So here's the thing. You giggle about it. I've shown Kim this before and a few students, okay? So as a, as a new believer, newly born again, the concepts of books, of chapters, and verses made no sense to me. So if there was a line that I liked, I would highlight it, underline it, and then I would put the page number, page 1,419, Acts 5, 30 to 32, Page 1,259, Matthew 4.7. Because I had no idea where Matthew was and 4.7 was that I had to first find the page to figure out what it was. So all of my markings, as random as they were, started with a page number. Okay? So go to page 1,380, please, in your Bibles. <laughs> John chapter 3. <laughs> John sets the stage for this proclamation of his gospel. That if this man needs to be born again, then I too need to be born again. If this man needs to be born of the water and spirit, then I too need to be born of water and of spirit. In verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And what's so wonderful about this line? Like, what kind of stands out? What's the first thing that we think of? Take a guess. Say something. That's not, what it, that's, that's not on there, though. <laughs> like, what's, what stands out in this? Like, what in this line? Sorry, I didn't clarify well. What is in this line that stands out? Love. Father's love. That stands out. Ha! Whoever. Who is at our cheer at the beginning of the night. Okay? For God so loved the world, wonderful, beautiful, amazing, and full of truth. But John's proclamation of the gospel is that whoever believes. Doesn't matter if you're a part of the Sanhedrin Jewish council. Doesn't matter if you're a Pharisee who knows all laws. Doesn't matter if you're a teacher of teachers and teacher of all Israel. If he doesn't get it, we're all in that place. It's whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, future pastors and teachers in this room, literary device, here's some, uh, a tip for you. Something that is repeated often, over and over again, is highlighting the value and the importance of that meaning in Scripture, okay? So here we go. You ready? In verse 3, this is, this is John's display of the gospel. Verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Verse 15, everyone who believes may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, in verse 18, believes in him is not condemned, 
Also verse 18. Whoever does not believe stands condemned. Verse 21. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. Are you catching on? For the readers... For the first-time readers, for the 16-year-old over-emotional teenage boy, whoever, this is for me? This is for me? This is for whoever believes. And if that's not enough, verse 33, skip down. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What an invite to a new life that is not anything in which that we can attain ourselves, but that through the sacrifice and the love of Jesus on that cross, whoever believes can be born from above. Amen? So we took the bus back to Emmanuel Assembly and got to the church and uh, they were going to do an all-nighter that night. Let's go. <laughs> a youth group all-nighter. Now here's the thing. Derek Koch youth group all-nighters, it wasn't games. It was a prayer all-nighter. Okay? <laughs> now I was like Cademan. As a 16-year-old boy, my friends are saying, hey, you should stay for this all-nighter. And I was like, I never came knowing that there was an all-nighter. I just came because there was a youth event that we were going to go to. I get saved at this youth event. Everybody's so excited. Okay, awesome, cool. Gav, you should stay for the all-nighter. So I go to the phone in the lobby of the church because nobody had cell phones then. And uh, I phoned home at like 10, like 40 at night. It would have been almost 11 o'clock at night by now. And I'm like, uh, Mom, um, I'm at this church. I'm at this youth group. And they're wanting me to stay, like, overnight for, like, an overnighter. Can I, can I stay? And my mom's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, great. Thanks, Mom. Uh, <laughs> like, I had nothing, like, no sleeping bag, no extra clothes. And we know how 16-year-olds smell after a couple of hours, right? And uh, as I'm on the phone with my mom, I have a bunch of my friends standing there. And they're like, tell her. Like, tell her. Tell her. And I'm like, what? Like, tell her that you gave your life to Jesus. Tell her that you're a Christian now. <laughs> so, on the phone. And I'm like, Mom, yeah? I'm a Christian now. <laughs> that was my line. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Christian now. And she's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know what this means, but I gave my life to Jesus. And she's like, okay, thanks, Gavin. And I'm like, okay, and I'll, I'll be home in the morning. I'll get a ride from Dan, and we're good. And so she's like, okay. And that was, that was the first time I told somebody I gave my life to Jesus. <laughs> it's not always poetic, right? <clears throat> and so that evening, in our prayer walk at like 3 in the morning, we're walking around my high school, and I'm praying for my high school, that that day, like, well, it was Saturday morning by then, but that Friday, I went to school as a non-Christian. I'm now praying over my school as this Christian, not having a clue what I'm doing, but praying, Jesus, I want more people to have what I have. I want more people to experience what I've experienced. I had no idea that, like, Jesus and resurrection and Easter were the same thing. Like, I looked for the word Easter in my Bible. It's not in here, okay? And I sat down, 
at like three in the morning, like I'd said before, and I started reading John. And I sat on the stage of my, of my church. And I was sitting there, and I was reading John chapter one, John chapter two, John chapter three. And I think I got to four or five. And a buddy of mine, Will, came up. And he sat down beside me. And he said, Gavin, this is the best decision you have ever made in your entire life. And I said, Will, thanks, man. And as a 16-year-old boy, it astonishes me that he said this. He says, but this is also the hardest thing that you'll ever do. And a 16-year-old friend had the wisdom and the understanding to say that to me. Because growing up in a non-Christian household, it's difficult. And some of you are there. And it's hard to express your faith and to share the gospel and to tell people about Jesus because of insecurities, because of fear, because of a void that you may be facing in your own life. The best decision you'll make, but the hardest thing that you will ever do. And usually in a passage like this, as a pastor who gets the opportunity to preach from it, it's like time for altar call and salvation, right? But I'm going to stand here believing that you've confessed Christ as Savior in your life. As a part of this school, I have confidence and faith that you have. I will say, if you need to get on your knees and accept that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life, I would love to have a conversation at this altar with you tonight. But I also want to give a bit of a, a challenge. And band, you guys can come on back up. That you may be living in a season where it is really hard to follow Jesus. It's hard to share about him. It's hard to live for him. It's hard because you've lost that initial feeling of this fullness and of this joy and of this new life and light. And it seems dark at times and seems empty at times. And there seems to be a void that just is always constant and dripping and hitting and never going away. Can I tell you tonight that Jesus wants to dwell with you? He wants to sit in the quiet of the evening and talk to you about life, about new life, about being born from above, about having a new identity having the right to be children of God, not born of, of human consent, but born of God. And he wants to sit and he wants to dwell with you tonight. And so maybe you're at a place where you do need to get to the place of surrender and acceptance as Christ is your Savior again tonight. But maybe you just need to sit at the front and be reminded that Jesus wants to dwell with you. He wants to love you. He wants to fill you, and he wants to see you new. And so I'll let you guys play. I'm going to invite you guys to stand.